Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, we are looking, um, walking through the last book of the Bible recorded somewhere around A.D. 94, 95 uh, A.D. It's written by the Apostle John uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But these are not John's words. These are not John's opinion. This is the revelation singular of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of these messages, and I well am well aware that a lot of these messages are not how-to pragmatic messages. We don't always walk away with the list of things that we ought to do and the list of ways we ought to be. Sometimes we come to God's Word to study God's Word in the way that it is. And in the study of God's Word, God takes His Word that is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and He carves out um, His Word in our hearts and our lives that we may be transformed by it. Today is one of those messages, as you've seen the last couple of weeks looking at this, where we are looking at the identity of what John sees in the throne room of God. And in seeing this, we are kind of um, at the mercy of John, who was called up into heaven to use the earthly language. In that day, it was, it was Greek translated into English to describe the things that he saw. Can you imagine, I mean, just how limiting that would be? Thankfully, it was way back when, when they had more language than, and, and better articulation skills than what we have today. Because today, if this happened, John would go up to heaven and come back and he'd say, that's cool, that's awesome. Because <laughs> everything is cool and awesome and I guess hip and fly and whatever else all the, all the words and lingos are. And we uh, uh, somehow seem to just when we don't know what to say, we just throw out one of those cliche words. Both John and the New Testament and Ezekiel and the Old Testament do their best to describe for us the things that they see in heaven. Now, they're not the only ones that were caught up there. Um, we see this in John. We've been studying this for a couple of weeks now. And Jason read about Ezekiel. And we'll refer to Ezekiel some today uh, as well. Uh, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 was caught up into heaven as well and saw a vision of the throne room of, of God. But these would be, scripturally speaking, and the ones that came up from there, would be the only trustworthy accounts and events of someone going to heaven and seeing and returning to tell us about it. The Apostle Paul was caught up into heaven and, and God said, you can't, even, you can't even write the things that you have seen. You can't even speak of it. And he says, I, I can't even put it into words. It's too wondrous to even uh, um, imagine or conceive or to capture in our language. <clears throat> so you'll notice in these accounts that there's no sickening familiarity with God that we get from these so-called accounts that happen today. 
God's not sitting down and talking slang uh, with with people and playing checkers and all the things that these modern day accounts tend to uh, do uh, and to articulate. Uh, beloved, you don't need to read those books and those accounts to find out what heaven's like. You need to read the Word of God, and you need to read the Word of God and allow God's the words of the Word of God and the words that He chose to articulate and to communicate that to shape our hearts and to shape our minds into what that place will be. As we walk through Revelation chapter 4, we have seen that there are a, it's, it's about the throne of God. And we've said that the throne room of God is in the temple of God. We saw this in Revelation chapter 21. And on this throne, um, the, the, it says that there's a throne standing in heaven. And the Bible uses all of these prepositions uh, to kind of describe the location of the various things in heaven. So 13 times in 11 verses, the word throne is mentioned. In addition to thrones, plural, being the 24 thrones that the elders are seated, seated on. But for example, we've looked at in chapter 4, verse 2, um, Behold, a throne was standing. And we looked at what was verse 2 on the throne. Verse 3, the preposition is around the throne. Verse 4, we looked at last time about the 24 elders being upon the throne. There were flashes and lightnings um, uh, that came out from the throne in verse 5. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, verse 6 says. And we come to the prepositions today in the center and around the throne in verse 6. What we've said is that we see John called in, into heaven and he sees God seated on the throne. And around him are uh, flashes of lightning and an emerald rainbow, complete circular rainbow. And we've looked at all of these different things that we see here um, and have done our best to identify those things according to uh, the word of God. And in verse 6, we come to what is in the center and around the throne. So look with me, if you would, in verse 6. And I want us to read verse 6 down through verse 11 so we can get these verses in mind, particularly around the identification of the four living creatures. Four living creatures. Um, probably a better translation would be four living ones uh, as opposed to creatures. The word is zao, uh, which means life, and it has the idea of living one. So in verse 6, the Bible says this, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now notice the description of these. In verse 7, the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. 
And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, notice the word say, not sing, say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns, as we saw last week, before the throne. So here what we see is we see John looking at the throne. He's described some things around the throne and now he's looking and there's some confusion about the language when it says in the center. Is it in the center of the throne? Is it at the center? This activity is taking place. Now I want to remind you again, the 24 elders, uh, I believe, represents the church. They are seated on the 24 thrones. They are still. They're not up and about and moving and doing all of those things. They are sitting there uh, on the their thrones. This flurry of activity that's taking place in, a, in the center and around the throne. You say, which is it? Is it in the center of the throne or is it around the throne? The answer is yes. It is both. It is a flurry of activity from these four living ones. There is no sitting, there is no resting for these living ones. There is no stillness there. There's no indication of a pause of activity whatsoever. In this particular place, in the throne room of God, it is just a plethora of busyness that is taking, around, taking place in the presence of God, even much like Jason read at the start of our time together today that took place in the book of Ezekiel. The first creature, it says, so notice the description of these. In the center around the throne, four living creatures. Now imagine this, full of eyes in front and behind. Now I know that as you and I look through here, and we think about these creatures, and by the way, we have no ability or capacity really to, to draw. Artists through the years have attempted to kind of take some visible description and draw using terminology from today, from the language of yesterday, to, to, to put some type of description. I think it's impossible really to, to put all the description together in such a way uh, that will make sense. But anytime we see something that has either less eyes or more eyes, right we think it's kind of spooky and something kind of scary to have all of these eyes and all of these things and to see these creatures and and I think I think it's unfortunate that the New American Standard and other modern translations use the word creatures because creatures kind of conjures up this negative ugly image of these beings but I would remind you that this is heaven. 
And I would remind you that this is the throne room of God. And I would remind you that this is the very presence of God in his throne room and everything that would be there and about there. Though it's hard for us to fathom how something with so many eyes and so many heads and so many things could be beautiful, I promise you, if you could lay eyes on them, they would capture your whole attention and you would be amazed at even the beauty of these living ones. So they're there, they're in the presence of God, there's this flurry of activity. Who are these living ones? Well, notice the description, verse, verse 7 says that, verse 6, they have these eyes in of they're full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a calf. The third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. So John describing these. Now I know when we looked in Ezekiel. In fact, if you hold your place in Revelation and, and find your way back to Ezekiel chapter 1. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the Bible says in verse, in verse 4 that there was, um, verse 5 within it, there were figures resembling four living beings, and this was their appearance. They had a human form. And, and Ezekiel says that, that each of them had four faces and four wings. And John says in Revelation, describing the same creatures in the same place, that, that the first creature was like a lion. Beloved, this is not a contradiction in the Word of God. Uh, you'll notice here, in, in this one it says they have six wings, and others it says they have four wings. All, the, all these writers are doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God is they are describing what they saw. For John, when he looked and saw this and he saw those creatures, the detail that stood out was each one had a different face. And for Ezekiel, when he saw the same beings, he saw the rotation and the four faces uh, from each one. It's not saying that the four faces were not on the living creatures in the book of Revelation. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just chose to highlight the four unique individual faces of each of those beings. The same thing would happen with the wings. In fact, uh, there's uh, uh, with these living creatures, there would be six wings listed in one place and four in the other. Uh, but don't get caught up in the detail and try to see some contradictory uh, notion that takes place because remember, these are living beings and these are angels and the good angels have the ability to fashion themselves in the way that they need to fashion. And we're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 10, in fact, if you look in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 15, what we see is we see that Ezekiel identifies these creatures, these living ones, 
in verse 15, as he's there, each one, verse 14 says, had four faces. The first was the face of a cherub, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle. Then the cherub rose up. Now notice Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 15. They are the living beings I saw by the river Kabar. So cherub would be singular. Cherubs or cherubim, cherubim, depending on your translation, would be the plural of them. The reason there would be a different name for these living creatures and living beings because there's order and rank and file. Though we don't know and understand the order, rank, and file of all of these, we know that there's the Archangel Michael. We know that there are cherubim because we are studying those today. And if you go to Isaiah chapter 6, you're also going to be introduced to the seraphim. The seraphim. Some say that perhaps the cherubim and seraphim are the same, and others say they're a different order of angels. But regardless of whether they're the same or they're different, they are there in the presence of God, and they are messengers of God accomplishing His purpose for which they are created. These are the cherubim that are in there. And by the way, this is not the first mentioned of the cherubim being um, uh, on the throne or around the throne. You can go to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. You can go to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80, verse 1 says, Oh, give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. The same truth is in Psalm 99. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. So the Bible talks about cherubim being in the presence of God on the throne room of God time and time and time again. When we think about these cherubs, we think about the role of these cherubs. There are really three roles that we see the cherubim playing uh, in Scripture. And when I mean playing, I mean fulfilling, I don't mean playing games. I mean three roles that they are fulfilling uh, in Scripture. One is guarding the holiness of God. Second is uh, demonstrating, exhibiting, and highlighting the power of God. And the third is worship of God. The worship of God. These angels would be in the very presence of God and, and they would call out His holiness. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6, there they're, they're described as the seraphim and the seraphim are there and we see here in Revelation chapter 4 that the cherubim take the same thing again I'll leave it up to you to decide whether different rank and files of angels that they have separate roles and responsibilities the cherub or the, the seraphim are only mentioned to be in the throne room of God worshiping and adoring and praising him the cherubim seem to be guarding the holiness of God demonstrating the power of God and engaging in the worship of God as well here in Revelation chapter 4 again, they say day and night, and they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. You see that? Revelation chapter 4 verse 8. The seraphim say similar things in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. 
So this idea of these cherubim being there in the presence of God, and they are announcing His presence, they are also awaiting His command. There's a flurry of activity. Isaiah describes the seraphim of having six wings, and with two they cover their place, their face because even cherubim being in the presence of God cannot look fully on the holiness of God. With two they covered their feet, indicating that the place where they are is holy ground and they dare not stand in the midst of God. And with two, they employ in the service of God, ready at His beck and call to go and accomplish the task and the will that He would have for them. Cherub are and cherubim are interesting in the fact that God uses them uh, over 90 times in the Bible, only one time here in Revelation in the New Testament. But over 90 times the cherub, cherubim are found in the Bible, all the way from Genesis. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, Adam sinned, Eve was deceived, God cast him out of the garden. Remember what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 24? Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, when God cast them out of the garden, the Bible says that he, God really is demonstrating his power. That's what I mean by the, the power of the cherubim. Um, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, so he drove the man out of the garden and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim. And notice the description of these cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction. Now look at what they did to guard the way to the tree of life. So if they were out and Eve said, oh, I think I forgot to unplug the curling iron. Let's go back. That would not be a possibility because the cherubim were, were there guarding the path and guarding uh, the way. Guarding the path and guarding the way. As we look at these, we'll talk about worship as we move kind of towards the end here. But even in the, in the, in the building of the Ark of the Covenant, the building of the temple and the tabernacle, time and time again we see the presence of the cherub. You go in the book of Exodus and see that the cherub were even fashioned and formed within the temple veil. 1 Kings chapter 6 in the rebuilding of the temple, what's called Solomon's temple, has some interesting things to say about the role of cherub in the rebuilding of that temple. 1 Kings chapter 6, in fact, it's listed here many, many times um, in verses 23 down through verse 35. And I just want to highlight a couple of these for you. You can go back and look at them yourself. But the Bible in 1 Kings 6.23 says, Also in this inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was, was the one wing of each cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. From the end of one wing to the end of the other were ten cubits. The other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubim 
were of the same measure and of the same form. The height of the one chair was ten cubits, and so was the other. He placed a chair, look at this, verse 27, in the midst of the inner house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out, so that the wing of the one was touching the one wall, and the wings of the other was touching the other wall, so their wings were touching each other in the center of the house. I mean, you can imagine how grand these cherubim were that he placed there. Verse 28 says he also overlaid the cherubim with gold. And then he carved the walls of the house around with the carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, open uh, flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. Same down in verse 35. So we see cherubim over and over and over again in the scriptures. One other place I think it's interesting that you might remember from your study of God's Word is found in Ezekiel chapter 28. And I would invite you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. This section in Ezekiel's um, uh, prophecy... Uh, it was a section of, of prophecy. He's prophesying all throughout the book. And in prophesying, there in prophecy when it comes to the Old Testament, and we've done some look at the Old Testament prophecies in the past, there, there are often times in the prophecies of the Word of God both a near fulfillment of the prophecy in an earthly understandable sense, and then the prophecies oftentimes in scriptures go beyond the immediate uh, uh, context into a greater fulfillment, oftentimes related to God and the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ or things along those lines. Here in Ezekiel chapter 28, there is a prophecy about the king of Tyre. And it was a literal prophecy that Ezekiel gave under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking what thus says the Lord. And it happened in context immediately as it, as it historically, as it says here. And we have the historical accounts to demonstrate that. But what we also find real quickly is that this particular prophecy can't simply be describing or referring to any individual uh, person on the face of the earth. It has to go beyond that, and indeed it does. Look with me and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Look in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man, created being, and not God. Although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There's no secret. That is a match for you by your wisdom and understanding. You have acquired riches for yourself. You've acquired gold and silver for your treasures. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. And all of this would be about the king of Tyre, a human being who became filled with pride and wanted to be God. 
and wanted to be like God and acquire for himself possessions in such a way that he could even convince perhaps others that he was God-like. But notice, if you would, down in verse 12... Down in verse 12, well, verse 11, the Bible says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, wait a minute. You were in Eden, the garden of God. How was the king, literal king of Tyre in Eden, the garden of God? You see what's happening here is Ezekiel's given this prophecy and it has near fulfillment in, in, in contextual language and culture of the time. Don't miss that. This prophecy that Ezekiel is given had a literal local fulfillment, but it also goes beyond anything that literal local fulfillment could do. Every you were in verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the, the diamond. Think about the, the beauty of this creature. The barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. Now look at this. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Now look at this. Verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers... And notice what Ezekiel says. These are the words of the Lord to the prophet of Ezekiel. And I placed you there. Where? He says, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. There is not a human being anywhere on the face of earth that God himself could say that about anyone. But he could say it about this cherub, this anointed one, this one who was created, who had all of these attributes, who is clothed in all the beauty and majesty and wonder of the cherubs at that time that God created. But notice what happened. Verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until righteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. What, what is this about? I think if you continue to read this and read other places in Isaiah as well, that beloved, what you see is one time the devil himself, Satan, was a cherub created wonderful beauty in the presence of God and yet sin was found in him. And once that sin was found in him, that darkness would have immediately been present in the glorious light of heaven and he would have been exposed in an instant. 
and God cast him to the earth. You may say, well, why didn't he cast him to Mars? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but he cast him to the earth. If you ever deny or you ever belittle the temptability of Satan, and I see people do it all the time. I see two extremes. I see two extremes. One is every time somebody does something wrong, they say, the devil made me do it. No, love it is probably your own flesh, your own lust, the desires of your own heart that led you astray. You don't need the devil to do everything to cause you to sin. You have enough sin and brokenness in your own life to desire to do that. And at the, same at the same time, if you ever deny the temptability of God, may I remind you that there in the presence of God, when sin was exposed to him and he was cast down, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that he enticed, he tempted somehow, not against their will, but he got a third of the created beings to follow him and to come with him, that he is arranged in rank, order, and file, and beings, principalities and principles of darkness, everything that God is, Satan is a counterfeit of God has his holy, holy angels and Satan has his doctrine of demons and if he had the ability to get an a get one third of all created angels and myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands to follow him and to fall with him but he can get you and me to sin he studied human nature for centuries. Look, you're no match for the devil. The Bible says this, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee, but you have no ability and capacity yourself to resist the devil. God has to resist the devil through you. He is a roaring lion, not seeking whom he can tempt, not seeking whom he can tickle, not seeking who he can get to say a cuss word or to have a bad day or to, you know, to do something you ought not to do. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he was one time a cherub in the very presence of God. I would remind you also, this is a good place to just interject. You know me, I have to say these things when I come across so I don't have to call you out on Facebook or confront you. If I ever hear anybody in my church say when somebody passes away that God must have needed another angel, we're going to have chat. If God needed another angel, he would create it, but he created all that he needed. And beloved, you are so much more than the angels. You're created in the image and likeness of God. The Bible says that one day that you will reign and rule over the angels. Don't ever place yourself on the level of an angel. Yes, right now for a little while, the Bible says that we have been made lower than the angels. But beloved, one day... Corinthians says we will reign and rule over the angels at the right hand of God. Amen. Don't lower yourself into thinking that your loved one is or their status that they would be an angel. But let me get back on point. If you look back in Revelation chapter 4, these four living creatures and with these eyes, um, the description of these angels... <laughs> 
notes that each one possessed all four facial features. But from John's vantage point, he only saw one face at a time. The first creature was like a lion, and the second was like a, a calf or some kind of bovine. The third creature was, was had the face of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying angel. Those descriptions view uh, the four cherubim in relation to the created world. John MacArthur says it this way, the lion represents wild creatures, the calf domestic animals, the eagle flying creatures, and the man the pinnacle of creation. Symbolically, the lion represents strength, the calf service, the man reason, and the eagle speed. The Talmud saw in these four creatures the four primary forms of life in God's creation. It's also noted that the twelve tribes of Israel camped under these banners, some with Reuben symbolized by a man, others with Dan symbolized by an eagle, others with, the Eph- with Ephraim symbolized by the calf or an ox, and the rest with Judah symbolized by the lion. The four living creatures like angels in general are deeply involved in the coming judgments of God. This is what you read about in Ezekiel chapter 1 and what you read about in Revelation chapter 4. You will see these living creatures come back time and time again. And this is the war machine, the judgment machine of God. When God unleashes his, his wrath upon the earth, it is through the cherubim that he delivers his wrath. We're going to see that time and time again, that these are very powerful individuals that stand ready to serve at God's beck and call. And when he pours out his wrath, it's these cherubs that have cherubim who have the ability to carry out God's plan for his wrath all over the earth. And we're going to see them time and time and time again in the days ahead. But for today, I want to close with this. The primary thing that these living creatures do is they worship God. In fact, they lead worship in heaven time and time again. And we see this over and over, even in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Look look with me here. Revelation chapter 4. The Bible says in verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say. You ever heard somebody say, Oh, they sing like an angel. Show me a verse of Scripture where an angel sings. What it says is, it says the angels say. Now let me ask you this. Uh... Angels, are there any sin in them? No, they're they're perfect created beings. If there's any sin, they were there. When they speak, listen, they hit every note, every tone. I don't know why I'm snapping so much today. Uh, I had a lot of practice with my kids yesterday. Stop that! No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, I don't. I, but what they say, they say in perfect pitch perfect tone and they say it in unison that is the most melodious sound you have ever heard but don't miss the fact that it says here they day and night they do not cease to say holy 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 
is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Worship in heaven that we read about begins with the four living ones crying out the attributes of God and what happens are the 24 elders. They come along and join them because look at what happens in verse 10. The 24 elders... And when the living creatures, verse 9 says, give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they will worship Him. So the four living ones begin the worship. The 24 elders representing the church, they follow suit and worship. And now notice, even over in chapter 5, verse 8, and the Bible says that when He'd taken the book, and we'll explain all that, the, li- the four living ones and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now they introduce instruments, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they bring that into there. Now notice you got the 24 elders in there, and now notice what it says, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and the people. And then notice verse 11, and we'll unpack that when we get to chapter 5. But notice what happens in verse 11. Then I looked. So we started out with four, and then we had the elders, and now we have the harp, and now we have the bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In verse 11, then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders. Now look at this. And the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. Can you, can you imagine that heavenly choir? I want to point out something here. This is just ministry philosophy stuff. Who makes up the heavenly choir? Everybody that's there, not just a select full of people that have the gift and ability to sing that come up in front in front of everyone else. I'm not opposed to church choirs. I love church choirs, but can I be honest? Hey, we are the choir. Congregation singing is what the Bible calls us to do. Not saying we ought not to do the other things ever, but I'm just saying the primary singing that we ought to do in church comes from us as a congregation because, beloved, we are the choir. And even if you can't sing a lick like me, just stand beside Mark. He sings wonderfully well and listen to him and try to keep up. Ladies, don't sit next to him and sing. He sings bass. You don't you don't want to do that. But worship the lamb that was slain. And day and night, day and night, day and night, they do not cease to worship. What about you? What about you? You know, the Bible says that we are created in the image and likeness of God, and we are created to be worshipers of God. The fact of the matter is, theologically speaking and practically speaking, you worship constantly. You worship all the time. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, you worship. The question is not, 
do you worship? The Bible makes it clear that you were created for worship. The question is, what do you worship? John Calvin said this way. He said that our hearts are idol-making factories, that we will continually produce idols that capture our attention and our focus and our heart, and we will chase after those things and worship and describe to them the things that we should only worship and ascribe to God. And we have to constantly be on the lookout and be aware of those things. Listen, good things, listen to me, good things in our life are great things, but they are terrible when they become God things. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be your career. It could be sports. It could be your child playing sports. It could be your grandchildren. It could be possessions. It could be anything. It could just be another spouse. It could be right. It could be all of these things. It could be envy of another child and their walk with God compared to your child's walk with God. It could be anything. It could be a car. And what happens is, is when we ascribe things to those things and put those in places in our lives that they ought not to be, the Bible calls that idol worship and God hates idols so beloved you and I are called to stand with the cherubim and with the seraphim and to worship God in his holiness and majesty and glory and to place everything else every other created thing in their proper place. And let me just simply say this, and and here's a, a statement I heard many years ago, but it still comes back to my mind to this day. Anything that you elevate to a status of Godship in your life, it never attains the status of God, right? It always comes between you and God. And may I remind you that that thing that has come between you and God is now closer to God than what you are. And you need to repent and remove it so that nothing comes between you and God. For the record, in your individual life, you are supposed to have God number one in your life. And listen to me. Listen to me, your spouse second, your children third. Now, I know that there are times in our lives that we have to spend time and do things other ways, and I'm not saying in terms of time, quantity and quality of time and things like that. I'm just saying in terms of your attitude and your perspective and your place of priority. Ladies, your first priority is not your husband, it's God. Your husband's next. And husbands, it's God first, and then your wives. And children, I hope and pray that you have parents that love God and demonstrate that in a way that you see and love each other and demonstrate that in a way that you see and you understand that you are third. Life's not all about you. It's not all about any of us. May God... Grant us the ability to worship Him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and not be hindered and not be distracted and not be caught up in other things that the world calls worship. But may we worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this day. And God, thank You for loving us and sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us and bringing us into the family of God. Father, I pray that we will see You more clearly, that You will be preeminent in the priority of our lives. That, Father, that we too might be like Ezekiel and like John, that when they saw You, they fell down as if dead. They were so overcome with Your awe and Your wonder and Your presence, and they just wanted to worship and adore and bow before You. God, may that be the desire of our heart as well. And may every day of our lives and every moment of our lives be about beholding our God. In Jesus' name I pray.